future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about... Radio Mysterioso. there yeah i don't know how to operate the stupid recorder well actually it's a studio recorder um my little recorder is working fine so that should work throughout the show and we should be good uh for our guest today uh and our guest is uh was announced so everybody that does their homework knows who the guest is and will be uh i will read his his blurb here in the interest of history and uh, this being up online for in perpetuity, uh, I will read the blurb that he sent me. And my guess is Aaron John Golias. Right? Right? Did I mess it up? Okay. He's <laughs> um, a history instructor at Mott Community College in Flint, Michigan, where he specializes in the modern history of the United States and American military history. Um, I believe that uh, this is Aaron's first book. Uh, at least full book. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, just a second. Let me let me hook the phone up here. I I discovered this uh, wonderful way to hook the phone up to uh, the cell phone, so I don't have to worry about Skype. I got to do it old. Uh, I don't know about old school, but old uh, style. Yeah. There you go. So yep. you can hear I me just... fine. Yep. Okay. Cool. Let me turn the volume up on the on the uh, phone. So, uh, yeah, I did the lazy thing. I did the uh, radio host thing and just read your uh, <laughs> your bio. <laughs> um, you also have a, another book. I get a collection of essays coming out through Paul Kimball's Red Star books sometime soon, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, some, sometime this summer. Uh, it's called the uh, Chaos Connection, and um, it's, it's it's sort of Sort of the B sides to the, uh, the the sort of scholarly contactee book that uh, that just came out this uh, this last month. So it's sort of an eclectic sort of bunch of things. The okay. Best way to describe. Well, the the book we're going to discuss at least part of the time tonight is called Extraterrestrials and the American Zeitgeist. And I didn't think there was a uh, oh there's uh, there's not a um, subtitle on it, but it's basically on the contact UFO flying saucer contactee movement. That, and uh, since that's been a 
uh, interest of mine for quite a long time, and any new book on the contactees interests me. I wanted to get a copy of this book, which I didn't yet, but I figured... I know. I'm, no, I'm I didn't I did not ask for one, figuring, one, it's going to be hard to just be giving them out. I'm not going to ask for one for free. And two, um, I've been talking about contactees for so long, I should be able to extemporaneize like any decent radio host, like, like Art Bell. Right. I think he was famous for not really reading the books of the people he's actually talking <laughs> to. So uh, I will follow in his footsteps and see if we can we can um, make a decent interview out of this um, with your help. Yeah. Uh, so why 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 the interest in contactees and you know that aspect of the UFO thing? Oh gosh, that, that's that's a, a weird question. It's um, a, I don't know. You're, you're going to get that one a lot if you keep doing interviews, and I'm sure you have. I I know. I, I know. Well, usually usually what I get is the why flying saucers, and then I can go into the contactee thing. I already know out. why flying saucers. Every, we all know that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I, I sort of, when I was a kid, I was, I was into all the flying saucer stuff back in the eighties and nineties. And, um, and I don't know why the contactees, uh, all I know is that the other stuff didn't really interest me that much. Uh, the abductees, MJ 12, Roswell, I just didn't care. Um, when I was in college, uh, my senior year of college, back in 1998, uh, our history club brought David Jacobs on the campus to yeah. do his spiel, and um, which is just my uh, history club advisor was like, "Hey, hey, let's get this flying saucer guy in," you know. And he he was a weird guy, um, just a weird guy. And no, you you can continue mind. that. Pardon? What do you mean? How was he weird? I mean, I think some people listening to the show might know that. I've seen him speak once. And I, yeah, I guffawed during the speech and got dirty looks, but anyway. What, what was weird to me was, was that we, um, some of the, the history club students and, and he and, and our professor, we, we all had dinner together, and, and he wouldn't eat what we, eat, we, what we ate. He had some sort of special diet that was brought in by, like, the cooks that warmed it up in the back or something. Huh. And uh, it was, I, I kind of wondered if he was eating alien food. <laughs> Sort of wondered if he'd been infiltrated, but uh, I asked him about George. I asked I asked um, Jake is actually about George Adamski because I thought, well, you're you're hypnotizing people and you're clearly out believing this outlandish stuff. Then I kind of wondered what his opinion was about uh, the contactees, and he just was completely dismissive of uh, of the contactees, and that just struck me as so sort of hypocritical. Well, he, you know what? He didn't see his, he doesn't see himself as part of that continuum. He sees himself as a scientist doing scientific work. Uh, yeah. And, and I think that's, that's one of the things that got me because, because he kept telling us that he was, he was a historian. He, you know, I am sorry. Historian. And, and, and that was, you know, I don't know. It just, it just struck me as odd. And so, I was like, you know what? It, these contacts, maybe there's something more to them just than, than just fake stories. Or even if they're just fake stories, then maybe they're fun fake stories. So um, in grad school, I needed a, uh, a research topic, and um, my original choice was pro wrestling. <laughs> and I could not get my hands on enough old 1950s pro wrestling video to really do anything with. So I sort of said, well, how about, how about flying saucers? And I had to narrow it down much further than that. And so I went basically to contactees in grad school, and that just was the start of the whole thing. Oh, okay. Um, 
Why? Because you could find more information on them, you said? You, I, I guess that's what you were implying. Yeah, it, it was, you know, I, I, there, was, there were a lot of books out there that were in, in print, well, not in print still, but uh, available pretty readily through these bookstores. The Internet was starting to cough up a lot of, um, a lot of scams and articles about them. And the biggest thing was nobody had really done anything about contactees from a historical point of view. There was a whole lot of stuff from the religious studies and sociology yeah. viewpoints, but as far as sort of cultural history went, there wasn't much out there. So I saw, saw sort of a hole that I could plug. So there, there's sort of a, a little bit of, of sort of careerism to it, too. Nobody had plowed that particular furrow um, in this particular way. So... Um, everything sort of came together and I work better when I'm dealing with a topic I actually enjoy. So. Yeah. Well, most people do. Otherwise you can't really get, you, you would just drift away from it, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I got it. I, I've, I did not, I thought I would do a, uh, like I said, I didn't write any questions up. The next thing that brings up, at least to me is how much credence do you put in any of the contactee tales, stories or, uh, whatever they used to tell people, and and to some extent still do, still do. Yeah, that that's that's an interesting question because it, it sort of I mean to sort of you know parse it out in a really obnoxious way. It depends on what you mean by credence. Um, I believe that some of the contactees honestly held the positions they held about the things in American society that they thought needed to change. I think many of them, even Adamski, had sincerely held political and social and sort of ethical beliefs. Um, I do not believe in most cases that the, the veneer of flying saucerism that they added to it was literally true. I think some of them probably, probably became entangled in some weird stuff at some point, had some kind of experiences, um, but uh, but I, I think it was a mixture of, of you know, finding something in the culture that people could latch on to, or, um, and just sort of embellishing from there. Um, but I think, for the most part, their, their beliefs that they tried to sort of, sort of promulgate through these stories were, were sincerely held. Right. I, I I was I, I actually I was start I was getting ready to start arguing with you because I I actually hold about this just about the same opinion right now that you do, and it, it's subject to change. Yeah, that I think some of them did have some sort of actual experience. Whether that involves people from other planets, I do not know. I doubt it, but I don't know for sure. So yeah, some something external I think has happened to some of them, but other than that, I'm not sure what that was. But yeah, so is that yeah, is that I mean, generally the tack you take in the book? Yeah, it, it's well. I, I well really for some. Try to focus, yeah. I, I really try to focus on the um, on sort of you know what they were trying to say in the midst of their UFO stuff. Um, I really try to stay away from the you know. I'm not sure if I'm, I'm trying to you know pin down what experiences they might have had because I'm just sort of analyzing the the documents they left behind. Um, in, in, which is what I really like about the uh, the book that I'm that I'm doing for for Paul's company that's coming out because I'm able to sort of sort of come out from under that sort of scholarly shadow a little bit and uh, and be a little bit more speculative. 
So, uh, it, so you treat this in a scholarly way. So, how how is the book kind of organized? What's uh, you know who do you talk about? Is it um, and you said it's not really a sociological book; it's more historical book. Um, so that yeah. it differs from things like uh, that uh, "Gods Have Landed" book that was uh, came out about I don't know fifteen or twenty years ago, uh, edited right. by what was it Stephen? Uh, what's his name? Uh, Stephen Lewis, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stephen Lewis. Um, or, I'm sorry, James Lewis. Stephen Lewis is our, a friend of mine. <laughs> okay, yeah, James. I knew it was knew it was Lewis. Yeah, gods of God, the gods have landed, alien religions from other worlds, or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, basically, what I what I do is is you know the in, introductory first two chapters are sort of what other scholars have said about the subject, and then sort of a brief. The chapter is called a brief history of flying saucers. Uh-huh. And then I go, there's a whole chapter on Adamski. And then the contactees who sort of riffed on Adamski in the, in the 50s and 60s. And then I sort of go into some more topic, some it's chronological but topical. I sort of go into the 70s New Age stuff. There's some Billy Meyer in there. There's the whole Ashtar Command thing. Um, and then how that sort of evolved through the 80s and 90s, um, including kind of exopolitics being a, a modern spin on some of the contacteeism. Yeah. Um, and then there's um, there's two chapters that sort of didn't fit chronologically. There's one about um, sort of darker things, including the men in black, uh, some weird channeling stuff um, that took some of the names uh, from the Ashtar stuff, like Hassan, but turned it into weird, bizarre, anti-Semitic conspiracy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then there's a chapter on on sex and gender where I talk about uh, talk about Antonio Villas Boas a little bit and, and some of uh, Al Bender's really sort of weird experiences with the purple light bathing him with the uh, the good looking women and um, and, uh, and Marla Baxter um, who was mixed up with uh, Howard Menger yeah and uh, and a woman from South Africa um, named Elizabeth Clarer I don't know if you've ever Ever read her stuff? I've but heard of her, was, but you, 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 please remind me and everybody listening. Yeah, she's she's a weird contactee. Um, I mean, even for the contactees, she's weird. Um, in the fifties, late fifties, early sixties, there was this little blurb in one of the British newsletters, uh, Fly, International Flying Saucer Review, or something like that. Yeah, and it was very sort of a, a very sort of Subadamsky, you know, I was out on Drakenberg Mountain and I met a spaceman and he was from Venus and, and he was pretty nice. And it was sort of, it just sort of that basic story. Um, and then in 1980, she released an autobiography called Beyond the Light Barrier. And it's, it, it, it takes that basic story and it just expands it out into this thing where it starts off, she's with her husband, then her husband, you know, is never heard from again, he dies, and then she meets the spaceman, his name is Akon, and he's from a planet orbiting, I think the star is Proxima, and they fall in love, and he's come to Earth to find her because she's blonde, and they need somebody like her to help breed children for their planet, and she's, <laughs> she's perfect, she is like them, she is from the stars. And, you know, which sounds sort of, okay, yeah, blonde, contactee stuff. Then you remind yourself, this was written in the late 70s, early 80s in South Africa. Yes. This whole book is freighted with this this sort of racial 
narrative that is just kind of kind of obvious um, and, and sort of disturbing. She she talks about how there, there's going to be a race war coming, and, and you know the aliens are here to save us from the race war. And she's friends with all these nice Zulus who she portrays as kind of you know almost kind of primitive, and um, but they know all about this the star wagon from the sky because they've been visited by these by these space people for a long time. And it just goes on like this for about 200 pages. And it's, it's not like any other contact ebook I've, I've read. There might be more out there like it, but it was just so, this book couldn't have been written anywhere, but, you know, 1979 South Africa. It's just really, really strange. I've heard of her and I never heard about her stuff in that, uh, detail. Claire, Claire is spelled with a K, I think, by the way. K-L-A-R-E-R? Yep. That's yeah. It. Okay. And there's a, there's a new edition of Beyond the Light Barrier out, um, so it's, it's relatively easy to find now. Um, and there's an afterword by her son, um, who, uh, who, not the son that was fathered by Akon Alien. <laughs> yeah. um, he's back on Proxima or whatever, but um, her earthly son, um, and he said, you know, he never directly witnessed his mother's contacts, but he knew that his mother was an honest woman, and he can't imagine his mother would lie about something like this, but he really can't prove it. So here's the story, and, and y'all can do with it whatever you like. And so it was this nice little thing where he didn't want to come out and say his mother was <laughs> making it up, but, you know, it was his mom, and, you know, she, she was an honest woman, and, and you know, who knows? So it was, it's, it's kind of a, a, a neat story, but it's it's very, very strange. Yeah, I I should have looked more. Uh, I I now I want to look more into the Elizabeth. Uh, no, what's her name? Um, Elizabeth Elizabeth Clara. Oh, it's it is Elizabeth. That's right. Okay. Um, well, a lot of people um, dismiss the 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 uh, obviously dismiss the contactee. I don't know, movement people, uh, people associated with everything they said as not really deserving of any kind of uh, attention, you know, with, uh, with the study of UFO, the study of the history of the UFO thing. And how and I think it's more important how people interact with the um, phenomenon than and what they think of it and how, it's, how it comes through the culture rather than what it actually, quote unquote, is, because we really can't find that out. Um, at least not yet. So uh, is is that kind of your attitude in the book? Yeah, um, it, it's it's interesting because because when I when I think about this, I I have to sort of re- remind myself that I I didn't necessarily write this book for flying saucer people. Right. I wrote it for people who had maybe heard of flying saucers, but were more interested in American history and culture type things because you know as dismissed as the contactees are within ufology, um, within the wider culture, they're just really not present at all. And they need to be, because especially in the 1950s, they are part of this broader counterculture that's bubbling underneath the surface of this, this very sort of repressive sort of Cold War monoculture. And they're, they're speaking out about issues at, that, um, that, honestly, some people were being hauled in front of, you know, HUAC for, for discussing. But they're doing it in weird ways. And they're, they're doing it in ways that are kind of below the radar because they can just be dismissed as crazy flying saucer people. Um, but they're making these serious points about, you know, the need for a just society and the need for peace and the end for 
war, end of nuclear war and things like that. So I think on the one hand, yes, flying saucer people need to, you know, take notice more of the history of the phenomenon, even the parts of it they think are embarrassing. Um, but also general historians of, of the Cold War in American history need, need to notice this and, and sort of sort of take the contactees into consideration when they talk about um, when they talk about sort of political subcultures and social subcultures during that time. Well, yeah, there, there's, uh, I think it's documented somewhere, and it's probably in your book, that the um, powers that be, probably, I guess the FBI, tried to, I don't know about infiltrate, but at least um, keep an eye on some of these groups because they were espousing these communist ideas. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, all these planets like Venus and Clarion or Truman Buffram, you know, you know, met Ara Rains and everything, you know, they were all societies that were not, Capitalist, not um, not like the United States at all. Um, of, of course, you know what what the FBI would find is, is that they weren't necessarily like the Soviet Union either. Um, they were more more utopian than anything. But uh, yeah, there was there was quite a bit of scrutiny. Um, if if uh, Prism, the Prism system, had been around uh, in the 1950s, uh, every one of these phone calls that these guys made would have been listened to and analyzed for uh, for their for their subversive content. Yeah, the um, I don't know if any. Did you uncover any? And I think uh, Nick Redfern has found this. But did you uncover or look for any? Uh, what, look for any documents related to it? Any official documents related um, to no, the contact? I, I really didn't. Um, that was that was a rabbit hole I started to go down in when I was sort of sort of organizing and breaking down the proposal for the book and. Um, I realized that if I were to go too far down that road of, of what the government wanted to know from these people, it would um, it would end up being sort of a different a, a, a separate book. Actually, the book the book Nick already wrote, um, Saucer Spies. Um, so I didn't really go too far in that direction. Um, I, I decided in, instead to sort of I had, I had two ways I could have gone. I could have expanded the '50s and '60s stuff dramatically. Or I could do what I ended up doing, which was sort of trace the sort of basic contactee model for talking about social issues in the midst of flying saucers and bring that up through the present. And I, I could only do one of them in the space I had. So the um, sort of the government, uh, the government sort of scrutiny stuff got dropped um, sort of early in the in the development of it. But um, but it's uh, it's it's an interesting topic, and um, and and I think Nick did a, a good job. And so I was surprised at looking at it, which angered some people. People were uh, were worked up over uh, over that book, which I thought was odd. I did not know that people got ir- irritated. In what way? I mean, what did they say? I, I read some reviews, and, and, and they're they're just like you know, it, it almost. I think it, it almost goes back to uh, to some of that stuff, like with uh, with MJ12. It's like. They don't want to know exactly how deep the government's been looking into into what they've been doing because then they don't know if they're being played, maybe. Um, just, I'm sort of vaguely remembering some reviews that sort of had that sort of, you know, well, you know, the government isn't really watching us that closely. They, you know, we're watching them. They're not watching us. Sort of that, that sort of chip on the shoulder sort of attitude. But uh, I, I thought it was a fun book. Yeah, me too, obviously. Um, what was I going to? Oh, I remember. Uh, 
you know, how how did they how was this commentary on the society at the time delivered? Is it just like, well, things are a lot better on these planets. If we were more like these people, we would we would have a better society. Was that the basic message in a lot of their uh, I mean, that that's the message I get from a lot. And they never really said, let's have a revolution or, you know, we, you know, uh, and apart from Gabe Green, who tried to run for president and, and, and try and put this stuff actually into the political arena, I think yeah. nobody really called for any action. They just said, might be better if we did things like the Space Brothers. Yeah, you know, it, it's it, it's weird. It, there, you're right. There, there wasn't, there weren't, they, they fall short of the call to action on a collective level. Um, most of the calls to action they do are, um, are very personal. Um, I think uh, I, I think the best example of that is is probably George King, um, his, uh, his his Aetherius Society. Um, his, his book, his big book, where he talks about all this stuff, is called "You Are Responsible" with an exclamation point and oh, yeah. a big dramatic cover. And um, it's very much about um, for, for King. It's about adjusting um, our internal attitude, and then when people do that then they work together to focus their energy and it's all it's all very very ethereal you know um but yeah there's no you know you know the venusians want us to uh to you know you know blow up the post office and you know <laughs> take to the streets you know nothing like that um because i think these guys especially in the 50s knew that that you know there's only so far they can go you know they don't they aren't revolution they want to nudge things you know, not blow them up. Yeah, they don't want to rock the. They didn't want to rock the boat too much, but just enough so that people would notice. And I guess the only way they could think to do this was, uh, yeah, and, through, and, through the through the UFO thing. And, yeah, and there's a sense, you know, especially in um, in uh, guys like Van Tassel and Adamski, that that we're just in a phase. That what we're in now is a phase, and we'll get through it because we're in the cosmic kindergarten. Just like the Venusians were, just like the people from Saturn were, just like humans throughout the universe have been. And, you know, we just have to keep ourselves from blowing each other up long enough to reach that next plateau, where we'll be up where the Space Brothers are. Um, so the sense of, you know, let's just sort of, guys, keep it together and don't do <laughs> anything stupid, and then things will, will be better. Um, we're going to get there eventually. But we, you know, this new, this atomic bomb has just screwed everything up because now we might never make it. Yeah, the uh, well, of George Van Tassel's idea was the Integratron to get people to uh, incarnate. I mean, lengthen your physical life. I think so that you're you wouldn't need to incarnate so many times to uh, to reach enlightenment. I guess. Um, yeah. So the, you know that that was part of it too. It, how much of it, how much of Eastern religion was, or at least some strange version of what they thought was Eastern religion, was brought into the contactee messages? Do you did you find? Oh, there there was a lot of it. Um, George King had uh, was probably the most. I mean, and I'm no expert on Eastern religions, but George King seemed to have the most authentic background. Um, his uh, his yoga stuff was was pretty, you know. He was well known as a yoga master before the uh, the contact with the uh, with Aetherius happened. Um, the, the, the other guys, I mean, Adamski had his uh, Royal Order of Tibet right. back in the uh, back in the twenties and thirties. Um, but uh, a lot of and 
a lot of that was sort of cobbled together from more from uh, theosophical sources than from you know actual you know the actual east sources of, of Eastern religion. But there's there's little bits and pieces of it around, and and you know I almost think it's they made it they made it sound authentic enough that it sounded authentic to people who were looking for something to believe in and looking yeah. for something to latch on to. Right. Um, rather than, um, you know, we're being firmly grounded in a specific, you know, traceable tradition. Yeah, because it, it seems like the uh, theosophical tradition was a little bit easier for a Westerner to latch on to because they had they'd done all the heavy lifting for you on the Eastern religion stuff before it got to you. It was in English, oh, yeah. and, and it was sort of a, what's the word, uh, um... I can't think of the word anymore. Where you blend two religions or more than one? Um, um, syncretism. Yes. Yeah. Thank yeah. you very much. It was a. Uh, it was the syncretism had already been done for you, so that you could. Uh, it was easier to swallow the Eastern stuff and more, more understandable. And when George King latched onto it, the Aetherius Society, um, I think that that actually helped him in, in the way you just said. That uh, it made it easier for people to understand and easier to. Uh, connect with i guess and yeah. uh, and it was and, and, different than the you know christian message of you know you obey and you know with the boss at the top right right and and especially um i think the uh the theosophical stuff was was very useful to this because it already had this notion of um a race of people or a group of people who had been like us but had moved beyond us and could aspire to be like them you know all the talk of the ascended masters and the great white brotherhood um and and once the uh, saucers started appearing in in the sky you know you, you almost have to i would have been surprised if something like the contactee movement hadn't started yeah. um all the pieces were sort of sitting there yeah so it was it was ripe for it i and the um it seems that some of the uh people died off i think the last one left standing at one point was um uh, uh the one in in el cajon um uh unarius society uh, oh um, ruth norman yeah i think she was yeah. the last one left standing i don't really think there's any of the classic contactees left at least in a big way um frank stranges died last year i believe um bob yep. short is is still around i think at least i hope he is um but he's not one of the people that mo most people think of he was kind of a uh i think he ascended a little bit more into the mainstream or at least more into the public eye after most of these people yeah. passed away but how you, you know apart from these people and what they were what their message was how did that change you know maybe through the 80s 90s and up to now uh, and who's who might be a contactee now um, well, there's lots of people who would like you to think they're a contactee. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I think... The, yeah, um, maybe how has the definition the, uh, changed? The ones yeah. that I, I sort of play with a little bit were, were um, in the... In, I mean, she's not with us anymore now either. But um, but Tuella, um, Tuella, who uh, who channeled Ashtar and uh, all of Ashtar's friends uh, throughout the, the 70s and 80s with books like Project World Evacuation and yeah. And things like that. Um, there's a guy. Uh, there's a guy now named um, Michael. Oh, what's his name? Michael Kaiser Elegian. Oh, okay. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but uh, Michael Elegian. And um, 
Yeah, Allegian, I think I'm pronouncing that right. And uh, his uh, wife, partner, uh, Aurora Allegian, also known as Aurora Light, um, who are now, they've sort of taken the mantle of Tuella in the late 90s, early 2000s, and even to today are, are channeling Ashtar. And they're claiming it's the same Ashtar that was channeled by, uh, by George Van Tassel back in the 1950s. And they are, um, they are, they're saying that the book that was published back in, I think, 2009 called, um, Prepare for the Landings, um, they, they came out and said, you know, we, we, you know, the ufological community spurned Adamski, spurned Van Tassel, spurned all the, uh, the brothers from the 50s. And, and now, you know, Ashtar is back and, and he's not happy. And he's not happy with the direction ufology has gone in. And then they mix this up with things like, you know, vaccine, wow, I agree with Ashtar. Uh, vaccine scares and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say, yeah, it, it, I agree with Ashtar then. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Ash, Ashtar is, is, is dead on. Ufology just went in the wrong direction after, after um, I think, honestly, I think it was after the, um, the, the Condon report. And, and, you know, that sort of deflated everything. And then the uh, the contactees sort of faded away, um, and uh, they they got they got all sort of new agey, and the uh, then, then you had NICAP sort of become dominant and boring, and uh, then once the abduction thing started and MJ12 started, there was no stopping that, and the, the contactee thing sort of got got moved back to the even further back to the fringes. Yeah. Well. Are you interested in anything else besides the contactee part of it? I mean, have, have you been? Are you interested in the UFO part of it or the ufology? I hate that word. Part of it. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, it's more of a personal interest than a, than a scholarly interest. Um, I I've tried to get into you know the the thing is with things like the conspiracy side and, and the Roswell side and the abduction side, um, the the scholarly part of it's been pretty well worked over, um, but. Uh, from a personal standpoint, I find it all just, just fun. I love it. Yeah. I, I just, it goes in waves. You know how it is. Sometimes yes. like six months, a year, and I just don't care. And, you know, then I, I come back and I think what brought me back the most recent time was, uh, was, was the Serpo nonsense. Um, I, I just found that just fascinating from a, you know, just, people really believe this wow sort of thing and, and you know that was fun there is a um, the, that film Mirage Man that Mark Pilkington and uh, John Lundberg did and directed. Oh yeah, I think that's coming out pretty soon. I, I've seen bits and pieces of it, and one of them, one of the bits and pieces, is I sat in a hotel room in Laughlin with uh, Bill Ryan for about two hours, arguing. Whether uh, the Serpo thing was a, some sort of government operation or really was something from another, you know, it was an intelligence operation or it was something from another planet as, you know, as it purports to be. And it's funny, he kept nudging me, trying to nudge me over towards, no, there really were people that went to the planet Serpo. And I kept nudging him towards, well, don't you realize that all the people are saying this were doing the same thing in the 80s? The same people involved with it are, are involved with it now, and he was like, "Well, that doesn't really matter." And I said, "Well, it does really matter." So <laughs> that'll be interesting to see when it comes out. But yeah, I yeah, found that I, fascinating too. I, I read I, the I wrote, book. Um, Pilkington's book came out a few years ago. Yeah, I think about four the, or five uh, years the ago. Film delayed. 
I seem to remember, I've been hearing about this film forever. It's been delayed. It's, yeah. at, it's now showing, I believe, at a film festival in England, and they're trying to get distribution for it. Okay, because I, I saw some graphics of, uh, of the movie poster online, and I, I got really excited. Um, although, I'm, and I'm not sucking up here, I think Project Beta was a far better book than Mirage Men. I think made the made the same point in a much better way. It was, you know, Mark's book was a different book. I did kind of wonder, you know, a lot of the stuff he talked about, and I don't know if he's going to hear this, maybe he will. A lot of the stuff he talked about, and it wasn't just Mark, I've seen this other places too, and other people's books, actually, so I shouldn't really whine. Um, people will talk about stuff that, that you worked and worked and worked to find out and just finally said, okay, this is what really happened. And then they mention as if everybody knew it in the first place. Right. But the thing is, right. he mentions me enough in the book and I'm enough in the film. So why, why should I whine yeah. about it? But yeah, I mean, yeah, that... I, I was, I was, I was interested in one aspect of it and I have a, my attitude in all this is I, you know, Bill Moore is my friend. I haven't talked to him in a while. Um, I really do love the UFO thing. I really am interested in the the uh, the government um, uh, interaction with the UFO community and what is it, what it is used for. I think Mark has more of like kind of an ironic hipster take on it, and I have more of a these are my people and I love them kind of take on it. I guess right. <laughs> if I had to really break it down into two things, you know, and in into the basic, you know, where we're both coming from, I, I could be wrong. You know, somebody can ask Mark about that. Yeah, but, it, uh, no, that that makes sense. You know, from reading the book, that that sort of the, it was sort of a um, almost um, reminded me a lot of uh, what John Ronson did in the Men Who Stare at Goats. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Sort of, sort of not affectionate, but not really mocking, but sort of detached, but bizarrely, you know, interested in the topic, but not, you know, not of the topic. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's if uh, if you or I or somebody we know wrote a book about the anything, you know, your personality is going to come out with it no matter. It has to. Otherwise, the book isn't interesting. Right. I mean, you're going to put your personal stamp on it and everybody has a different stamp on something. And if you if you're you know, if you really care about it and you really work on the craft of trying to write it, then that that take on it's going to come out. And maybe that's what. You know, that's what makes people happy about it or irritates people or whatever is because your personality as it comes out and that is either something that turns them on or it doesn't. Or, you know, and have you noticed this yet? I'm going to ask you this question. Somebody will. Has, has anybody written a review of your book yet? Uh, not yet. Um, not that I've seen. Um, OK. It, and and the, the prospect of it terrifies me. So, um, <laughs> yeah. You know what? It'll I, scare... sort of, I sort of look for reviews and then I'm like, I, I don't want to I don't want to look. So, I did. Yeah, I, I looked. Yeah, I'd be. T I was terrified, and the first negative review I got, I was so mad and so you know, upset, and so. And then after a while, like anything else, your skin thickens up, and you start to read them and really look at what people are saying. And a lot of people that say things where they that are very critical of the book, they don't. They didn't pay attention when they read it. Oh. Because they'll specifically they'll say stuff like you know you didn't mention this and you didn't deal with this it's like I did it like four times in the book here's the pages <laughs> <laughs> so so you know like I guess the general thing is don't really you know people 
actors and people like that, they're like, well, don't re- don't believe your reviews and don't worry about it. You know, if you if you really suck, then you'll find out at some point. But don't don't worry about what people think. And then once in yeah, a while, there'll I... be somebody that says something, somebody that says something that's very intelligent, and you do have to deal with, and you might have to say, wow, maybe I wasn't right there. That you know, but it, you know, if you're real careful about your book, I mean, that's not going to happen I, so um... much. I've sort of inoculated myself. I've got I've got a list of like five to ten things I know I would have I should have done better and I, I would have done differently if I if I would have had one more pass at it. So any any of those five to ten things that are brought up in a review, I'll be like, okay, yeah, that's yeah, absolutely. Well, you know what? So, they um, won't be. I bet you at least four of them won't be, or whatever five. I bet nine of them out of the ten will never be brought up. Well, I. I, I <laughs> One one or two of them are kind of glaring. Um, oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's at least at least I think at least I think they're glaring. But you know how it is. You know, you live with the thing for like a year or so while you're writing it, and you, you sort of become blind to everything except the sentences in front of you that you're trying to make work. And yeah. the, the whole picture sort of gets out of hand. So it took you about a year. What did you send out the proposal, and then um, the uh, publisher? You got the one publisher that said, "Oh yeah, we'll do this." Yeah, basically, um, see, the, the timeline was I sent the proposal out in October of, well, it would have been October of 2011. And then um, sort of, you know, correspondence, you know, hammering the thing out and contract in January, February of 2012. And I delivered it in July of 2012. So I actually spent about seven months actually writing it. Um, I still don't know how I did that because I was teaching a full load at the same time. Yeah, I was about to say I, you did that in seven months. That's amazing. Yeah, I I have it, a little bit of it. There were bits and pieces that I already had written. There were um, some conference papers that made up part of one chapter, and and you know there were some chunks of my thesis that I reworked. But for the most part, about it's about ninety thousand words, and about seventy thousand of those were were brand new in those seven months. Wow. Um, I have no recollection of the year 2012 whatsoever. <laughs> it's all gone. I don't remember a minute of it. But it's the blur of word processing. Did you I, – I, you know what? People are going to say, what are you talking about this stuff? But I want to know. Did you write all of it – did you write 90% of it in the last couple months? Um, it was actually pretty evenly distributed oh, from wow. January to I'm July. jealous. <laughs> about about ten thousand words a month. I, I sort of set myself little little sort of word count deadlines all along the way because um, I, I knew if I didn't do that, I it just would have been a disaster. So I, I tried to be pretty disciplined. Oh, okay, yeah, because everybody, just about everybody I talk to is if they're an author. I said, well, how do you, except you and Nick, I think. How did you do the book? What did you, you know, when was most of the writing done? And it's always like, well, in the last month or so, or in the last couple of weeks, and, you know, a, a frenzy of 24 hour writing and, and two hours of sleeping. And, yeah. You know, I, I had sort of, sort of fantasies of, of doing the, you know, 72 hour fueled by, you know, caffeine, you know, and Red Bull sprints. And, <laughs> and then, you know, after about, after about six hours, I realized that. You know, I, I needed to, you know, actually talk to my family and, and you, know, <laughs> you know, play with my son and, you know, go to my, my job and, and sleep. And I, I think I, 
yeah, I can't remember the last time I stayed up. All, well, no, I can remember the last time I stayed up because all night because it was that John Lear appearance on Art Bell back in November 2003. That where he came out from right. retirement, and, yeah. and I was driving all night through the fog with John Lear telling me that we're just containers for souls, <laughs> and and that, that was the free. I was like, if I look over in the passenger seat, why do I have a feeling John Lear is going to be sitting there in the car with me? I, I just felt. That was creepy. It was one of those things where, I mean, I know, you know, it's John Lear and he's been saying the same thing since 1985, but, you know, it was just the way it was presented on that Art Bell show and the fact that it was the Art Bell show. Yeah. It, it was, it was just, it was just amazing. It was one of those times that really takes me back to why I'm interested in all this stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it all goes back. Oddly enough, it all goes back to a lot of the the weird paranoia and fear, sort of X Files type feelings. What your your paranoia X Files type feelings? Yeah, you know the, the contactee stuff for me, as far as my 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 sort of personal interest in it came came second to um, to sort of the the, the early nineties paranoia stuff. I, I think that the first grown up book i read about ufos was um uh, uh is it bloom out there oh uh, yeah ralph uh, ralph blum bloom Blum. yeah yeah ralph yeah it, it came out when i was a senior in high school and i read it right around the same time the first season of x-files was airing uh, and yeah. then perfect the perfect next storm. year i went to college and i hopped on usenet and i found uh alt aliens the alt aliens usenet group and paranet yeah. and all that stuff. yeah yeah so I read back all the all the you know the John Lear hypothesis and the O. H. Krill document and <laughs> oh God, Bill, Bill Cooper, you know, and went out and bought my copy of Behold a Pale Horse and you know now I, I read reread Behold a Pale Horse and I see like the fact that he reprinted the entire Protocol of the Elders of Zion in it, yeah, and that's what jumps out at me, not the flying saucer stuff, but you know it, it just sometimes that that stuff just comes rushing back and I'm like. I remember the one time when, um, and uh, and if, if my old college roommate is listening, and I talked to him last night, he'll remember the time when I found a list of IP addresses for Air Force bases, and I attempted to to hack into an Air Force base, and he, he ran over, panicked, and unplugged my computer before I could try. <laughs> um, even though you know I had no idea what I was, I think I was like just using it in an FTP. I'm like the worst hacker on earth. I have no idea what I was doing, but my roommate was terrified enough to unplug my computer before. Um, he's like, you know, they're going to put you in a camp somewhere, and I'm like, well, yeah, because I'm getting too close to the truth. <laughs> and you really but, thought but that told, too? You know, I did halfway. I did. Even the um the, the stuff you know the, the stuff that now we look at is oh yeah that that early '90s crap. You know, in the mid-90s, that was pretty recent. And, um, yeah. you know, you, you read about the, the cattle mutilations and, and all that stuff, and you read about it all at once when you haven't slept and you're stressed, <laughs> and it just sounds it sounds just plausible enough to scare you. There is a book, uh, one of Gray Barker's last books, the... Uh, Men in Black, The Secret Terror Among Us. Oh, yeah. He yep. wrote the book like that. He, he, it's, he, it's so funny. He set people up. And he's like, if you are in, in any way, it's like, it's like those old movies where they say, you know, if you're scared, get out of the theater right now. 
He was yeah. like, don't read chapters 6, 8, and 13 if you're you know, easily frightened. So what do you do? You go to those chapters immediately and read them. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love that. I, I, haven't, I didn't read that book until um, a few years ago um, when, it was, when it was reprinted because it was out of print for so long. Yeah, but, I, got, um, I, got a, I got a ring-bound copy of it. I think Gray Barker printed up himself. Oh, wow. I, 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 I wanted to get him to sign it, and his phone number is in the back. I called that phone number, and his mother answered and said, "Oh, Gray died last month. I missed him by a month." Oh my gosh! Oh wow! The, the Gray Barker have been down to Clarksburg twice to the um, the collection um, in the in the library down there. Yeah, and um, it's the, the most recent. First time I was in grad school, and I didn't know what I was doing, and I, I only had a day, and I I didn't really take full advantage of it. This last time, I took two days. Wow. And my laptop had a scanner. Uh-huh. Um, the guy down there was incredibly helpful. He is. I, I found him. He's, he's great. Uh, David Houchin. He is That's it. Yeah, good. I met him. He's, he is. He was wonderful. Yeah. Um, and he's just he's just so helpful in finding stuff and, 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 you know, working with the library to get permissions for some photos for the book, too. So oh, wow. I'm really grateful for that. I think I've actually, in the book, there's a picture of Al Bender that I don't think has ever been seen. Um, oh, great. It's just, him like sitting at a typewriter. Oh, okay. Because so, the one everybody sees is like him standing in his in his uh, f- uh, Halloween room, and then there's like I think another one of him on a TV monitor or something. I can't remember. Yeah. But there's there's only like two or three of them. Yeah, he's he's so, still so alive the, too, as far as I know, living not probably five miles from me. Oh wow! Yeah, he 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 doesn't want anything to do with the whole subject though. Anymore, no, I don't want to go and bother him. Although I keep telling friends, let's go over and get thrown off of uh, great. I mean, uh, Al Bender's front porch. <laughs> no, we've never I, done it. You know, out of out of out of all of those guys, I, I just have the feeling that that Al Bender had something really really weird happen to him. I I don't know what it might have been, and I don't think it was was, you know, Men in Black from the planet Kaik, or however it was supposed to be pronounced. Yeah, Kaik. Um, Kaik, yeah. Um, but, uh, but th- that... Who's got know. Kaik? Yeah. I, I think um, in, uh, in Redfern's uh, Men in Black book, he goes into a, a little bit about, you know, some of the sort of psychosexual stuff that might have been brewing in his mind and things like that, or um, I think, uh, I think what was, what was the guy's name? Uh, Jim Keith uh, wrote a book about the Men in Black, where he talked about Bender a little bit, yeah. uh, and some of the sort of psychological stuff. I think something weird happened to that guy. Yeah, and it's—I don't know if it came all from inside. So that's the thing. The big thing that comes up, and I—I I keep coming back to at least with the contactees and some of the people that same claim some sort of contact with something, and where that opinion comes from about, you know, is there something here? Are there UFOs? And I'll ask you the same question, but mine is this guy, Mario Pozzaglini, I used to know. He was studying, he was a psychologist. He studied alien writing, or people said that they had Mm -hmm. met aliens or channeled it or whatever. And I asked him the question. I said, well, how do you know this is coming from outside the person? There isn't some elaborate psychological mechanism whereby you can make up these alphabets. And he said, I've looked at this for many years. And I'm convinced at some level that some of the stuff that's coming is, is you know, a, a lot of it is coming from inside the brain of the person that's talking about it, that's experiencing it. But some of it isn't. 
and I don't know what that is. I, he's te- he was tempted to believe that it was some other consciousness or something that wasn't human. In fact, I think he pretty well had concluded that with not, not a whole lot of you know reproducible evidence. But based on what he'd seen, yeah, there was, you know, some of it was coming from outside of the brain of the witness or percipient or whatever you want to call it. Um, and after you've been, you know, as long as you've been looking at this subject, you know, what do you think? Do you think there's there's something to that or do you think it's all from, in, you know, it's all hallucinations, etc.? I, I, I think I don't think the idea that it's all hallucinations and that there's something really there are mutually exclusive. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, I talked about this in, in the, some of the stuff I'm, I'm writing. I wrote for the, the book that's, that's coming out from, uh, from Red Star, but um, basically I, I think there is rea- there is reality to it. I mean, humanity has, humans have been experiencing these things, since we've started recording things that we've experienced, um, whether you call it religious experiences, whether you call them paranormal experiences, whether you call them, you know, just sort of psychic or psychological episodes, um, the human brain is affected by, by things that we don't currently have the means to measure. Uh, that doesn't mean it's not there. It's just that we don't know how to consistently and repeatedly prove it's there and understand it um, in any sort of, in quote, scientific way. Uh, that doesn't mean it's it's not real. It just means that we don't have a, a category to put it in. So the dominant paradigm is to sort of ignore it and ridicule those who think there might be something there rather than look for a way to explain it maybe recategorize our uh, our pigeonholes um <laughs> something's something's there yeah i i've been saying at least for the last couple of years i've started to i think i probably got this from somebody else but my the idea is that there's an interaction and within that interaction with whatever the other thing is what the ufo thing is not not what it's not what it is because i don't know if we'll ever be able to figure out what it is in quotes but the interaction is is what we perceive and we're contributing to it as much as probably more than whatever it is is if you know what i mean yeah um it it prods us it prods our minds or whatever psychological thing our minds might be um and then the way we respond to that prodding um sort of draw, draws out other sort of... Sorry sort about of that. That's that's the uh, Radio Mysterioso um, siren that goes by at least once every show. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, actually, I feel like, you know, the show's actually begun now that the siren has gone by. Oh, okay. Um, so you've listened, I, some, you've listened to some of the shows. I have people that listen oh, to the show oh, yeah. that say, it, where it, are the sirens? I don't, I don't want to listen to the show unless the sirens come through, so... That's right. The I, baptism I sort of, has know, happened. Yeah. Some, some of the episodes I've listened to enough that I can almost pinpoint when the sirens are going to hit. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, this is, this is that one with, with Bosley when they're talking about the funny eyeglasses. So sirens are coming in five minutes. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, j- j- I am going to buy a copy of the uh, of uh, Extraterrestrials and the American Zeitgeist now just because... because um, 
the, the fact that you feel so you feel so inclusive inclusive because of the sirens, <laughs> and that you listen to the show enough to know that it's it's kind of a lead motif of the show is the sirens. Well, you know, it's weird, and I, I sound like a, I sound like a, a dribbling fanboy, but um, no, yeah, the radio mysterioso fanboy. But um, you know, it's it's like it's like this show is is one of the last places where I can get conversation about the topics I'm interested in presented in a way that doesn't bore or annoy me. So, um, so it's, and, and, you know, I, have got a pretty low boredom threshold. So. Yeah. Well, me too. You, you would not believe how low my boring threshold is. And you, and it's in social situations, you get, you get to this point where you're like, okay, either this person is more interesting than me, or I have something to learn from them. Or they're not as interesting yeah. to me, and I have nothing to learn from them. Um, and at that, you have to find that tipping point and decide whether you're going to do most of the talking, or you're going to leave the situation as quickly as possible, or you're going to shut up and let them talk. Right. You know, and I, that's that's part of the reason why I have the show. I'm going to have people on that I'm interested in, that uh, you know, in general, I I consider at least you know at least slightly more intelligent than me to much more intelligent and then i'm going to learn something from them and have fun at the same time and you know why would you do anything else i'm i'm sure that's who, you write the book too because you want to find out what's going on with other people oh yeah yeah and and part of the part of the reason i wrote this book was because it's one of those i don't know sort of a, a bucket list thing it's like you know what i've been i, I want to write a book you know what and i i want to write it I want to write a book for a traditional publisher where I write the book and then I hear nothing for 10 months and then a book <laughs> appears with my name on it. Yeah. I, you know, the, the, the boutique publishing, the, the, the self-publishing thing, that's cool. And I like that. And I think that's great. And I'm probably going to be doing a whole lot more of that than the traditional publishing. But, you know, it's sort of like before this sort of antiquated means of getting information to people disappears, I want to be a part of it. So it was, it was partly that, and, and partly that I, you know, spent so much money on contact ebooks on eBay over the years. So I need to make uh, some me of that too. Money back. You probably bid <laughs> against me. <laughs> yeah, it's like you know, you know, when I, when I spent that uh, that twenty five bucks on the hardback of Flying Saucers and the Three Men, <laughs> I, 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 you I got knew that cheap. I had a problem. You got it cheap. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. It, it, it didn't have the dust jacket. Although I was in New Orleans last week. And I went to a uh, a used bookshop in New Orleans, and I found um, a copy of Morris Jessup's Case for the Flying Saucer with wow. the dust jacket wow. for um, eighteen dollars. So amazing! That was uh, that was a good score. Now it wasn't the the you know naval reconnaissance office. No, the Vero edition, edition, yeah, which there is a I, copy got, of at uh, the Gray Barker Library. Yeah, I, I did. I did. I did get a look at it. It was um, pretty cool. I have the sort of PDF version that came out on the internet, pirated. It's not as cool, but um, it's uh, it's it's neat stuff. Oh, I think I have a collection. Yeah, I think I have a copy that I got from Bill Moore actually, Ooh. but it's not. You know, it's not the one. It's a photocopy of. It's not the one with the three colors of ink in it. Oh yeah. So I um, it, that one is I don't even know if anybody has that. The one at it, uh, the Gray Barker Library was a copy too. I don't think it had the colors of ink, or did it? I I don't think it did. 
Yeah, because I, I, I don't even know if those exist anymore. And if they do, I think they ought to be facsimile printed with the colors. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it'd be so cheap to do it nowadays. Yeah. Somebody, yeah, exactly. somebody, oh, man, there's probably somebody out there sitting on, like, three copies who has no idea what, what the significance of it is. Yeah, well, and, yeah, yeah, you're right. Overlooking the, overlooking the fact that people like me would pay way more money than I should, you know, for a copy of that. Okay, what, what's but, your favorite contact e-book, then? Oh, uh, my favorite contact e-book. Oh, man. Um, That's I a am, tough one, um, isn't it? It's, it's hard to pick one. Um, I think... I would have to pick um, George Adamski's Inside the Spaceship. Inside the Spaceships. Yeah, the, f- the first one. Um, actually, it's the second one. The first one was Flying Saucers Landed, where Desmond Leslie did his whole Oh, yes, yes, yes. The Flying thing. Saucers Have Landed, yeah. Yeah. Then Inside the Spaceships is, is his, his journeys in the spaceships, where he's talking to Furcon and Ramu and, and yeah. all those guys. And that's the whole book. And yeah. then his third one, Flying Saucer's Farewell, yeah. was basically him answering his critics. Yeah. And then, like, a couple things he wrote back in the 30s. Um, so, yeah, Inside the Spaceships is sort of the classic. Although, although, if I had to stretch my definition of Contact E, which I kind of did in the book, just so I could talk about it, um, they knew too much about Flying Saucer's. Is it, And it's in probably the top five books that I just reread on a regular basis, yeah. just for fun. Yeah, I, I, I would understand that. Did you ever read um, Gray Barker's book on the on the uh, uh, Clark, I'm sorry on the Mothman thing, the Silver Bridge? Yeah, um, yeah. I uh, that's I, probably one I, of the best UFO books I've ever read, and it's not because it's a UFO book or anything like that. It's because of his. His take on the thing. Everybody knows the John Keel take on it. Nobody knows really anybody else's. Yeah, that's that. That's actually. Oh gosh, I've got a, a bit in my book uh, from from Red uh, Red Star that actually talks about that a little bit. So um, hey, all right, you you anticipated that. Um, but yeah, I think what I what I like about what I like about Silver Bridge over um, over Mothman prophecies is. Is that Gray Barker was very much of the area, um, yeah. and to him, it's a local story. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to him, it's it's very much bound up with this, with the the sort of the sort of space and the and the sort of geography yeah. of of West Virginia, and um, and and for for John Keel, he was uh, he was writing a John Keel book, you yeah. know. So and it was awesome, but. Silver Bridge, I think, is a, is a better book in just about every way. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and, and the John Keel book. The thing is, if you'd read Silver Bridge first, would you think that? Oh, you, you know, I don't. You know, you're right. I don't think I would. I think if I read Silver Bridge first and then read Mothman Prophecies, I would assume that Keel had, you know, done more detective work about the mysteries involved. And it was a more in-depth take on it. Um, reading them in, in the order I did, which was, as most people, Keel first, then Barker, um, what I come away with was that Barker was able to strip away a lot of the crap and get to the heart of this constellation of weird stuff in this fairly weird place. Yeah. Um, 
better than Fielded. Yeah, I think so too. And it's it's more like hmm. You can see why um Barker and uh, Jim Mosley were friends when you read that book. Because yeah. he's far more interested in the people, what's happening to the people, their personalities. I mean, he describes going to I think he describes going to one of these witnesses' houses, which is out in the woods somewhere, and he knows the, you know, he doesn't know them, but he knows people like this. That just yeah. live out in the out in the mountains in West Virginia, and that's their lifestyle. And you know, Barker grew up, I think, in Clarksburg, which is slightly more urban, uh, quite a bit more urban than a lot of these places. But you know, five miles outside of town, as you know, yeah. there's people living like this, or at least they did back then. And Barker goes and deals with that, and that's yeah, that's amazing to me. I mean, uh, uh, I don't know about on a sociological level or whatever, on a journalistic level, it's a lot more interesting. Yeah, I I, I agree. I think I think Silver Bridge is is about it's about the land and the people yeah and um and I, I mean i'm being a little hard on keel here maybe but mothman prophecies is about john keel it is um, and i'm a huge keel fan and i'll always be and and you know and that that that's him but <laughs> we're talking about the silver bridge here and we're talking about two different takes on it and like yeah. you said um and you know as prodding you if we hadn't read keel first we probably would have liked Keel better because it's like, oh well, this is you know a little bit more you know this is the sophisticate coming in, dealing with these things right. and trying to get to the bottom of it. And Barker's is just some guy that lives out there, and you know because of the time we grew up in and what we're interested in and what we're exposed to first, suddenly Silver Bridge becomes the interesting one, and the, yeah. and, the and the and the one if you're really into the subject matter that you should that you know, uh, it's like a, you yeah. know a, as a uh, what is, what what do I want to say? It's like a uh, uh, Sergeant Peppers, uh, you know, Keel is the Sergeant Peppers, and and Gray Barker is the um, revolver or whatever. Yeah, you know, where all the yeah. fans really go for revolver, but all the you know, uh, but all you know, the and the the general public goes for the you know, and, and the people that are right. not into it may go more for the uh, the the uh, yeah. John Keel yeah. version, the one that they made the film out of, and you know all this, right. Yeah, Silver Bridge is the sort of is the sort of hipster, you know, Mothman. Yeah. You know, <laughs> oh, I did want to say that, but yeah, yeah, it, it, it's like, well, you know, yeah, Mothman Prophecies is, is okay, but if, if you're really into it, you've read the Silver Bridge. You have read the Silver Bridge, haven't you? <laughs> oh, you haven't? Oh, you, yeah, you don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's that's the uh, whenever I've act, I've actually. I've actually said that to a student who asked me about the Mothman prophecy. <laughs> um, actually, it, it did he say "shut up, you hipster"? You know, uh... he actually said he said start out with "Have you seen that movie, The Mothman Prophecies?" And I'm like, "Oh, the movie? <laughs> Have you read the book? Oh, there's a there's a, there's a book. Oh, there's a book. Yeah, but there's another book that you should read. You know, <laughs> so it, it's my, my my levels of of condescending hipsterism with this." <laughs> Don't go pretty deep. Saucer um, hipsterism. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Students love me. Yeah, you know, like oh, that, that jackass with the flying saucers. I got him for class. Actually, that is a question. Well, what it, you, you students, I guess, know about your interests? I would suppose because it's out on the internet. What What do they say? What do they think? Um, most of them, um, most of them think it's. Most of them are, are bemused by it. Um, I uh, I actually 
actually brought up the contactees when I talked about the 50s. Um, I did talk about contactees and flying saucers. I actually have had them read um, the Mitchell sisters, Helen and Betty Mitchell's little short stories um, about meeting the statesmen. Um, that didn't go too well. Um, <laughs> what did they say? This they, is boring. They, they, they said it was boring. They, they just, there was too much before they got to what I wanted them to get out of it, and I had to do a little too much prompting. Well, that's almost um, all contact ebooks, almost. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's it's like it's just like watching television from the fifties. Yeah. You know, you, you have to, you know, it's like watching television from the eighties. Even you know, a lot of stuff you have to sit through before anything actually happens. Yeah, um, and there, there's a lot of setup for very little payoff, um, and and so yeah. I, but for the most part, the students mostly just ask me what I think about Roswell um, <laughs> and uh, a whole lot of ancient alien stuff. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in my early world history class, it, it's it's just it, it's just rampant. It, it, it's to, to the point where, uh, where where they're they're not really believing everything the ancient alien says, but because it's on TV they think there must be some truth to it um, because people who sound smart are saying things that sound true. Um, so it, <laughs> well, there's it, a it, lesson it, in it, class. It, it's, it's a good, it's a good, actually the ancient alien stuff is a, is a great opportunity to, um, to sort of at the very beginning of the semester, talk about what historians and archeologists do and how they do it and how we, have come to the conclusions we've come to and where there are gaps in our knowledge and um, why alternative theories are fine. Um, but, you know, there's a process and, and evidence needed to back them up for them to be, to be accepted and, and why, um, why there isn't probably a conspiracy to keep all this stuff hidden, to keep selling textbooks because they come out with a new edition of the textbook every year. And so, you know, if, Mohenjo-Daro had been duped by aliens from space, they would simply print more books and charge more money um, <laughs> with the new information. So it's um, the ancient aliens thing is, is, is probably they hear aliens and they jump to that nowadays, and, and a little bit of Roswell. But uh, mostly they, um, mostly they, 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 I'm no less strange than any of anybody else they have for class, so it, it works out pretty well. I'm a strange guy who wrote a book, darn it. So, you know, that's... Something. Yeah, do they... Uh, is anybody anybody in your class reading that book? Obviously, you can't assign it out as a... Well, I guess you could, but you're not really teaching that kind of a class. No, I mean, if I... And, and, and even if I was, um, I would... I mean, I teach at a community college in Flint, Michigan. I, I would feel really bad about... You know, you know, you know, students, you have to buy my book. Um, yeah, so... Uh, do that. Some students have said, "Where can I get your book?" And I've told them, "You know, you know what? The, the library here on campus is going to be getting a copy, so you know, just hang tight. You know, when they get a copy, read it." So I'm, I'm actually very, very bad at selling things. I, I actually had to be talked into selling somebody a copy of the book. I just felt so bad, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I kind of do the same thing, and it's probably why neither of us will ever be really successful at, as uh, writers because of the self-promotion thing. The, the guy that's real good at it, I think, is Nick because he's he's real good at self-promoting, but he's also real good at not sounding like he is. 
yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's a really fine line, um, and and one of the problems, and, and this is just sort of a public service announcement for for Radio Mysterioso listeners, um, for God's sake, buy the buy the Kindle version or Nook version. It's much cheaper. Um, the the paperback is is expensive because it's an academic publisher and they can get away with charging more money. Get the ebook version. I, I'll make less money off it, but I'm worried about you, dear listener. So, um, oh, also so, more so people buy will buy it. I think more people buy it if it's easier. If one, it's cheaper, and two, easier to carry around than it. I've stopped buying books unless it's a real, a real zinger that I really want. I, yeah, I've me really too. St- yeah, I've stopped because I've already got so many books. I don't have any more room in my place for them. So yeah, me too. I, my my bookshelves at home are full. My bookshelves at work are full. And um, and and honestly, I do I really need. To have a physical copy of these the horrible Star Trek tie-in novels, I, <laughs> I mean, I don't really want those things around. You know, it's it's like it's like nerd porn. You know, I I, I really don't want people to see it. So, you know, you, you know I'm I'm carrying around that iPad. I could be read. I mean, I'm, I'm I could be reading Schopenhauer or something. You know, you don't know I'm reading comic books. So, you know, it, it's. It's really convenient. I know. Uh, I know Paul Kimball is not a not as big a fan of the ebooks as uh, as some of us are. Um, but, uh, but but he's you know he's very sort of old fashioned in some ways. So. Yes, he is, and that's good, and that's charming. And I'm glad there's people that's doing that that yeah. do that that want to do that. Um, Adam Go Rightly's publisher, at least the publisher of his um, Shadow Over Santa Susanna book about the Manson family, he did a special yeah. hardcover edition of, I think, you know, 55 copies or I don't know what it was. And that that's, you know, and that's wonderful. And then there's the giant paperback edition and then there's the Kindle edition, I think. But I have one of those copies and that's the kind of thing that I want to have. Not yet, like yeah. you said, like, a, a, you know, another Star Trek novel or another Star Wars novel or another, <laughs> you know, and or something like I would like to read that book about, you know, uh, uh, the the effects of cocaine on Freud and some other uh, uh, medical doctor from that s- sort of co-founded John Hop- Johns Hopkins University. Yeah, um, I want to read that, but I don't. When I'm done with it, I'm not going to look at it again. So why bother having you know? Why bother having that that stuff on the shelf? I know, and and w- one of the things I really like about about the Kindle is that I've sort of got this system set up where I can do highlights. I can take notes, and it shoves it all into my uh, my Evernote account, my little note-taking software. So I have all these notes all tagged and organized, and I can go back and find sections that I want to find. And it's, you know, it it, it's, it, it, it has its place. Yeah. Um, and physical books have their place, too. And um, gorgeous, gorgeously designed limited edition hardbacks have their place. Yeah. And I'm just glad we live in a in an industrial situation where we can produce all of those formats in um, in fairly economical ways. Yeah, what's your what what's the most you've paid for a contact ebook? <laughs> oh gosh, I, I and do you want to admit was, it? My wife was going to download this later on. Um, I got to be. I gotta be careful. Um, <laughs> I, no, no, she 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 knows I've got a problem. Um, I think I think about somewhere like thirty or forty. I think um, I, I think oh yeah, I think it was thirty. I got a copy of Truman Bethram's book with the dust jacket. Yeah, I think it was forty. Um, but you know, it's Truman Bethram. You need it. 
Yeah. Know? Well, see, you can't really do without it. Yeah. Um, one, the ones that I, I wish I could get my hands on were those are those little sort of handmade, hand stapled ones that you can't find anywhere. The little pamphlet type ones. Um, those are those are hard to find. Yeah. Well, um, George, uh, uh, one of the Georges. Why can't I think right now? Uh, uh, Integratron. George Van Tassel's uh, Van Tassel. I Rode a Flying Saucer, which I always yes. love that. I always think of somebody on a saddle on top of a flying saucer. But You know, when I was, when I was working on the book, the, the hardest thing was to not write, I rode in a flying saucer. Yeah. It was, I kept typing that, and, I, and when I got the proofs, I, was, I got like three times in the proofs where yeah. I wrote the name of the book wrong because the name of the book is so stupid. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that one. Yeah, I found a copy of that on eBay. I think for like fifty or forty or fifty dollars one time. So I actually have a the stapled one, where oh, it's just man. a little paperback, a little you know self published stapled with a nice uh, uh, like watercolor looking cover. Oh wow! So that one was. You know, there, there, I was really happy about that one. If 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 I need to. I need to. I don't know. Maybe, maybe my first royalty check. I'll, I'll go on a contact e binge. But um, <laughs> but if I could find uh, the one that Buck Nelson wrote. Oh um, yeah, I'd love to see that. I've I would, seen I it, mean, but I've never. I, I took some sort of camera phone pics of it for reference at the Gray Barker Library. But uh, the fact that it ends with him ending the sentence in capital letters, saying "I've said enough. I better go now," or something like that, and that's just the end of the book. Is is just great, and the fact that that among the many problems the United States has is uh, is false advertising. And his example is when you pick up a can of pork and beans, it's like ninety percent beans and only a little bit of pork in there. So really, shouldn't it be called beans and pork? <laughs> it goes on for a paragraph about this can of pork and beans and about how that's in Buck Nelson's book. I think I, I think it's. Yeah, he's, he's, Buck Nelson was the one who uh, had the Venusian dog named Bo, right? Yes, then he sold dog. He sold hair from the Venusian dog at yeah. uh, at saucer conventions. Yes. Yeah, he, he had a little bit in there about about the pork and beans. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it was. I think in, in the book I refer to the most, the, without a doubt, the most trivial social concern ever expressed in a contact book. Too much um, beans, not enough pork. I think that's pretty, yeah, actually, so, pretty so profound. It, it should it should be called beans and pork, not pork <laughs> and beans. Clearly, yeah. It's you know, and and there's another one, um, another one of those stapled ones, Truman Bethram's uh, second book, where he, he there's a little there's a little bit of aura reigns in there, but uh, it he has this one part where he talks about how in America today. All you have to do if you disagree with somebody is call him a communist. And it's like I had to check the date. And I was like, should he have been saying that? <laughs> it's just a little sort of bold. But, yeah. you know, the best thing about Truman Bethel is the fact that, that he was so clearly cheating on his wife with his imaginary friend. Um, yeah, he, she divorced him because of it. Yeah, it's it's. Amazing, and at the at the end of um, I think aboard a, a flying saucer, all these books have the same names, same type of names. Um, blada blada, a his, flying saucer. Yeah, yeah. His wife doesn't believe him until um, 
until she meets George Adamski, and Adamski sort of endorses Bethram's story. <laughs> um, it, it's this it's this weird sort of like like Marvel Comics meetup between Truman Bethram and George Adamski. It's, it's like suddenly you know we met Spider Man. You know, and, and, um, one of the things I, I point out in the book is, is one of the great things about well not great things one of the sort of very telling things about um, about Bethram's book is that it's very clear that he feels that no woman in his life cares about him whatsoever, except Aura Rain. Yes. Um, his wife, his friend's wife, his daughter, nobody believes him, nobody takes him seriously. But Aura Rain's, um, the, the, the lady space captain. The one that know, looks like a beatnik she, princess, yeah. Yeah. She's got a beret on in that one picture everybody's seen of her. I, I I love I love the picture. I I, I love that. I, that was my uh, that was my computer wallpaper for a while. Um, <laughs> I can made see my that. office look really weird because it's nothing but like this picture of this drawing of Aura Rains, and on my walls are these World War One propaganda posters with you know you know frighteningly sexy women dressed as nurses. And my my <laughs> office looks like it's disturbing. And students walk in, walk right out. But oh, good. That's what know. that's what that stuff's up there for. Yeah, so, and I also have a, a four-foot inflatable green-colored gray-style alien in the corner. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's it, it, it's it's useful when when students have their kids with them. The, the kids can can have one kid just just like start beating the alien down, like on the ground, pounding this alien. Like I wanted to say, has your son been been abducted? <laughs> you know, very aggressive toward my inflatable alien. Yeah, but um, I. I have you noticed any any odd scars on your son's body? Strange nosebleeds. Have you called Daryl Sims to check this out? Oh God, that's a, I I can't believe you even bring up Daryl Sims. That 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 means you're hardcore, you know? Yeah, yeah, you know it, it's. Yeah, I, Something to do with the, the terabyte of Art Bell shows from the '90s I have on my hard drive, but um, <laughs> that that's. You know, that's something that, you know, you, you go back and, you know, they're, they're, we all have our golden age of this stuff, you know? Yeah. And um, it, it's sort of that nostalgia for something you don't remember, because I never listened to Art Bell in the 90s, and I sort of came to it when I discovered, you know, all these recordings that were um, that were out there that I absolutely paid honest, hard cash for, uh, Clear Channel, honestly. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't get them off the torrent sites. No. Um, but uh, but you know one thing that uh, that is really very very obvious is just how far coast to coast AM has fallen in the last five years or so. Well, and I would agree with not, that. I've been whining about it on the show, as you know, for years. Yeah, and and you know, the thing is, I, I finally I finally come to grips with the fact that I I can't blame George Nori. Um, and really? as much as I, you know, as much as I, 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 I don't really dig his style of hosting, I just think there's not enough going on in the field right now. The, the, the field, uh, I hate it when I say that. Whatever um, you mean with the UFO thing, the, the, not enough going on in, in, in the realm of the paranormal mm -hmm. to, to really sustain seven nights a week. You know? Yeah. Well, what do you think the next thing's going to be then? I, I've I've sort of speculated. I guess it's going to. A couple people have been on and said I think it's going to be ghosts again. But no, that's already passed. 
So yeah. I don't know what it's going to be because it's waves. You know, it's like Bigfoot. It's cryptozoology, then it's paranormal, and then it's parapsychology, and then it's UFOs, and these things go in waves. I, I think it's it's going to be. I think it's going to be the sort of transhumanism thing. I, I I think they're going to sort of go into the the sort of high tech frightening frightening stuff. Um, you know, the singularity is going to touch down, and you know we all get cell phones in our spines or something. You know, um, either that or they're just going to go full on political paranoia, and uh, and that's going to make a comeback. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it depends on what goes on in the in the U.S. government in the next couple of years. But yeah, there's plenty of people doing that now. And then on, um, in addition to that, there's the uh, the exopolitics thing, which I think has taken over, and everybody you know realizes this has taken over the UFO study of UFOs or the UFO field or whatever you want to call it. For, for I was going to say for better or worse, I think it's for worse. It is. It is. I. I agree. Um, you know, it, it wasn't until the last couple of years that I realized that, that somehow insidiously exopolitics had become the mainstream. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I, it's sort of like you, you wake up and you realize you're still in the nightmare, you know? Yeah. You, you thought Stephen Greer had gone away in 1999 or something, but no, no, he's got a movie now. Um, yeah. And it's that the, the latest thing that... Um, they're I'm going to call it the E word from now on. I'm I'm mad that somebody made me say that word. Uh, uh, makes me say that word now. I know it, it's it's such a made up stilly word. It, it's it's really really frustrating. But but it's it's penetrated. It really has. I yeah. uh, I did a a and live. There, you know, there's, um, there's good parts of that too. Or, so. Pardon? There's good parts of it too. It gets people interested in the subject matter. There's there's a lot of valuable things said. You know, I'm doing my excluded middle thing here, but but the the thing is, I think at the way down at the end of it, there is you're asking for something which you've already made a decision on, and if you don't get that answer, it's going to be a lie. You're going right. to call it a lie if you don't get the answer that you want. That you have, right. Any, you have you have come to the conclusion that that's what it is, and if you hear something different, then it's a lie. Any any honest in, any honest inquiry or questioning about what this phenomenon might be is clearly you know just disinformation, right? You know we're we're all all of us who all of us who haven't made up our minds are are clearly sent from the government or, or just ignoring what's so blindingly obvious. Yeah. Uh, I I if you. If you think I'm interrupting you, keep yelling over me, and I, I will stop. But you oh, know. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I couldn't, I couldn't hear you. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. I've, I've got, I've got the thing set up so the phone is sort of. You know, I can sit nearer the phone. I've got it set up so that um, the phone, the headphone thing, is going into the the soundboard here. But I'm just using the microphone from the phone so you can hear me. Oh, okay. So as long, I think maybe if I put the phone maybe nearer the speaker or point it towards the the. Excuse me, the studio monitor. You might be able to hear me a little better. Yeah, that 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 is better. Okay, good. Um, so yeah, I, I there was another tale of something. Oh, that was it. Um, the 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 I, I will um, you know uh, I I will tell you the the book that I paid the most for. I don't know if it's my favorite one, but it was a uh, copy of Son of the Sun. By Orfeo Angelucci, but it was the copy is signed to Gabe Green. Oh wow! 
And it was there was a point at which when Gabe Green died and he lived out in the desert here in California, um, all of his stuff, all of his books and everything just got kind of put into uh, donated, given to bookstores. There was a garage sale. Some people picked some of stuff up there. I didn't know about this till like, like a couple months after the fact, and I found this in a bookstore out there called Sagebrush Press out in Yucca Valley. They had a bunch of Gabe Green stuff there, and that was the that was the one thing that I really because the rest of them were just his contact ebooks that he you know his collection of contact ebooks. Well, I have those books, but here was one signed to signed to Gabe Green from Orfeo Angelucci. That is that is awesome. Yeah, I think that was a hundred bucks. I don't know why I paid that, but you know what? I'm never going to see that again. Yeah, and I'm it, never going to sell know, it. I'm just going to keep that because it makes me so happy. Yeah, yeah. That was that was a, that was one of those one of those classics. And, and Gabe Green was one of those guys who, you know, nowadays he's pretty much not remembered hardly at all. Yeah. But you know, he was the original exopolitician. You're right. I never really thought of it that way. You're right because he ran for president and he wanted to, you know spread the Space Brothers message and use their economic system and their technology yeah. and all that. Yeah, he, he was, he, he, you know, Stephen Greer wishes he could be Gabe Green. <laughs> I, th- I think we should make up a little poster like that Gabe Green one about, uh, you know, your, your only choice for 19, whatever it was, 1960, 1960, he ran. He ran against Kennedy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And he got like what fifty two thousand votes in California, something like that. It was it was significant. Yeah, I mean it was it was more than he probably should have got. Yeah, I wonder how that happened. I mean, were there that many saucer people out here, or what? I I kind of something something to me sort of makes me think that maybe it was sort of some sort of like state political party shenanigans. Like we need. We need certain people to get certain votes in a certain way. Oh, we need and to split so, it a little bit. We're going to use Gabe yeah. Green to split the uh, socialist vote so that the, that right. person, yeah, right, yeah, or, or yeah, or to split the you know more liberal Democrat you know voters or something. Yeah, <laughs> split the crazy liberal Democrat voters. <laughs> it's I can't well, believe. Then, yeah, I've, have you heard those recordings of him talking about? why he wanted to run for president and like his campaign manager. And I found these recordings online. I think they're probably still around if you look them up. Yeah. I, I think I, I think I saw some on uh, archive.org. Or something. Yeah, maybe that's um, where I got them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, and I think I heard him once a recording from uh, the long John Neville show. Yeah. On. Yeah. The, 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 I think Wendy Connors used to sell those and you can find, Long John Neville yeah. shows around. So have you heard many of those Neville shows? Um, a few. Um, a few. Some of them are, are really good. Um, I actually have his book, uh, the, the Way Out World. Yes, um, yeah, that's a wonderful where he book. He talks about how Howard Menger came on the air that one night and basically recanted his whole contact E story and then went away. And yes, you know that that was funny. Yeah, that, that that is a fun book, and the, the, his uh, his tagline was "I don't buy the gaff," which I always thought was wonderful. Yeah, didn't didn't he have a thing with a wife who was supposedly a mind control? Yes, Candy Jones, person. the the uh, Candy Jones. the uh, model. Right. 
I, uh, for, for reasons that are inexplicable even to me, I was uh, reading through a copy of uh, Kathy O'Brien's Transformation of America this weekend. And that that, that is an excellent book of, for laughs. Yeah, that... Still there? Yeah. Hello? Yeah, you're still there. As soon as we mentioned yeah. Candy Jones and Mind Control, you, I thought you were going to get cut off. That was going to be perfect. Well, you know, <laughs> the, NSA, the NSA is clearly listening to this. So, yeah, it, the, the Kathy O'Brien book is deeply troubling. Yes, anytime anybody mentions Boxcar Willie, I start laughing uncontrollably. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's funny. The um, You remember Mystery Science Theater? Yes, of course. Um, the guys from that are, are doing something called Rift Tracks now, which is the same sort of thing. And um, every once in a while, when, in, when they're you know riffing one of these one of these movies or one of these educational shorts, they will slip in a line about Boxcar Willie's a lizard person. And you know, so clearly somebody on their writing staff is is up on you know the truth. So. We were just in D.C. recently, and there's a Boxcar Willie Park. I saw it on the map, and I really wanted to go down there and take a picture, but we didn't really have the time. Oh, Boxcar Willie. (laughs) If people don't know, what it is in the book is uh, Kathy O'Brien says she was a mind-controlled sex slave for some section of the government, and she had to go have sex with various people, uh, including Boxcar Willie, when she was real young because she alleges he was a uh, child molester. Or at least that he was working for the powers that be and that um, she was his um, slave for a while as his uh, reward for uh, advancing the New World Order uh, agenda or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, you know, the entire world revolves around Boxcar Williams. Um, he keeps showing up in this book, and yes, uh, he does. You know, it, 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 it's just he's a country you know. singer. I mean, everybody knows a few people that don't know. He's, he, he he was a, he died a few years ago. He was a uh, country singer. Yeah, almost almost a novelty country singer. You yeah, know, novelty he, country he uh, 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 folk singer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was no George Jones. You know, he was. You know, he's Boxcar Willie, but um, yeah, the, the book is the, the book is is a deeply deeply strange thing, um, and and it's one of those things where, like some of the the abductee stories, you kind of wonder what really happened in this woman's life yeah. to make these narratives come out of her, um, because I mean, this is it's some, I mean, honestly, folks, don't you need a strong stomach? Some of it's pretty rough. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of it that's very funny and ridiculous, but a lot of it's kind of very. I mean, it's 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 uh, it's stomach churning, bad, bad stuff. But the thing is, you, you wonder, you know, how much of it is true? I think probably almost none. Um, but on, on top of that, you're just kind of yeah, like you said, what's going on in this poor woman's mind? And I think some people kind of who was her co-author, Mark um, something. Um, oh. Gosh, um, I can't remember his la- something. Um, I can't remember his last name. I found a copy of that at the 1997 Roswell 50th anniversary thing. Oh. I went up to a table and the guy, oh, what was her, the the woman that wrote Cito's New Friends? Oh, uh, uh, Haley? Leah Haley, yeah. whose real name was um, Anita something. Yeah. Um, but she, her husband was had a book table, and I said do you have a copy of transformation of America? And he gave me this, like he kind of went white as a sheet. And I was like, well, what's the problem? He said, 
I do. Um, it's right here. And he actually had to reach under the table in a box at the bottom of a box. <laughs> it was like this, you know, it was like buying porno in the 30s or something. It was right. really weird. And it basically is porno. So he, yeah. he, he pulled it out. I paid for it. And we took it back to the hotel. And I sat there with a writer from a, 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 a journalist and a filmmaker friend of mine. We got drunk and read passages out of it to each other and <laughs> fell over laughing. <laughs> There's a there's a, a great horrible I mean just sort of mean spirited but hilarious review of that book um, on the uh, the old you know the old conformist website conformist with a K yes uh, that's um, run by my friend Rob Sterling who still does it I think oh really yeah, yeah. I, I haven't been there in a while but there's a guy I think the first I heard of it was this this hilarious review this guy wrote of it and um and, and basically you know it's like are you bored with all the porn in your library well you know pick up a copy of, of transformation of america i guess um the, the co-author the, the guy mark whoever wrote this really angry email threatening him and you know all kinds of stuff it, it was it, bizarre oh i'll have to ask rob about that I, it sounds like he might have written that mark phillips is his name mark phillips yep yeah, I think Rob wrote that review, and if he didn't, uh, I, I'm sure that he, you know, that's that sounds like the kind of review he would have written, um, because he's very serious about the conspiracy stuff. But he's also, he, you know, if he sees something that's ridiculous, he will have fun with it, and sometimes yeah. something he's serious about, he'll have fun with too, which is why I really respect him. <laughs> yeah, I, one of the things the review said that I, I really sort of sort of liked is, is like he said, you know, what? I, I know mind control is real. I know trauma. Trauma-induced mind control is a real thing. I know our government does it. I want to believe all these horrible things because it fits into my into my worldview. But yeah. this book isn't the way to persuade people that yeah. this stuff is happening. <laughs> it, it's, it's not going to work. I didn't realize you were so far into the weirdness here. I guess I should have when you write a book about the contactees. It's wonderful. You know, I, I, you know, it, it's sort of it, it's it's very freeing to be able to talk about it yeah i think there might be somebody who wants to talk to you uh, that we might okay. be able to do that just a second do you mind no fine. okay okay just a sec i'm, I'm the engineer too so kill radio i mean radio mysterio so both oh okay it's it's our friend ward and he has a question for you let, let me put, let me see if i can get the uh, phone up there and um here we go ward can you hear us I can hear you great. Uh, Aaron, can you hear me? Yeah, hi. Hi, yeah. Uh, hey, listen, it's great to hear you uh, as a guest. It's great to hear that there's another fanboy for Radio Mysterioso out there. <laughs> um, hey, listen, I had a question for you. Uh, I think you're a hit tonight, and I hope you come back. Um, i really enjoying it. I haven't laughed so much uh, in this field forever. Um, did you hear the interview that Greg did um, with Ray, Ray Stanford, the two shows he did with Ray Stanford? Oh God! That, was that the one where, where Walter was going to hit him? Or yes. Something? Or, Wal Walter got Walter. very mad at him, and I told Walter to calm down because he was just a guest and don't worry about it. Yeah, Walter was yeah. very nice about it too. <laughs> yeah. But Ray didn't Ray have a couple of um, uh, really interesting stories about Adamski and essentially his outright hoaxing of the uh, of so many of his stories. Oh yeah, 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 um, yeah, and, and that's. That's one of the things in, in the book, in, in the very beginning of the book, I, I say, 
you know, my goal here is not to determine whether or not this or that picture of a flying saucer was actually, you know, Chrysler hubcap or something. You know, that that's not a very difficult thing to, to prove. Um, the point is to look beyond the hoaxing and say, okay, Bill the contactee thinks that racial harmony, world peace, and social justice are good things. Why does Bill the contactee think that making up easily disprovable stories about flying saucers are the best way to get his political ideas out to the people. And so, you know, the hoaxing is there. And, and, you know, a lot of us, you know, when we started in the UFO thing, we look at the hoaxing and we say, oh, you know, that clearly, clearly not true. You know, I need to move on to, you know, the, the real stuff like crop circles and, you know, Roswell. Um, but, you know, you, you look at it closer and it's like, you know, this hoaxing is it's sort of a smokescreen concealing some fairly powerful and, and, and for the time fairly fairly radical um, uh, political and social ideas, and, and so you sort of you sort of home in on that, and the hoaxing becomes just sort of you know window dressing. Do, do, do you actually, um, as a question for you, as far as modern day contactees, do you kind of consider possibly uh, Whitley Strieber and um, possibly his writings and uh, his sort of his movement online? Um, possibly a sort of modern-day contactee? That's a good question. That, that, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, I, I, coincidentally, I just a couple weeks ago got done um, reading this set of articles about Strieber and his book, The Key, and about how allegedly it was, it was changed and there was some controversy and, and things like that. And I started looking at, at some of Strieber's stuff um, a little more closely. I mean, I'd read Communion and, and Majestic and stuff back in the day. But if we go sort of with this, this sort of sort of meta definition of, of contact deism that I've sort of cobbled together as using the paranormal, particularly flying saucer stuff, as a as a means of transmitting cultural, social, political ideals that the contactee thinks are important, I, I think I think Strieber would definitely fit into that, uh, especially in the last uh, in the last ten years or so. Um, he's just from what I've seen um, moved much further into the. I've got some important ideas that we need to adhere to for humanity to move forward, type of thing. Um, and that was always sort of lurking in the background, but it's become much more much more important. I think Strieber fans, and I think there are some really hardcore Strieber fans out there um, tend to give his ideas more credence because he's Whitley Strieber and he had these experiences that, you know, regardless of what you think about Strieber, I mean, something, I, I, mean, I keep saying this, I think something weird happened to that guy. Um, don't know what it was, but it affected him. And uh, he, he's clearly on a mission of some sort. So in that sense, yeah, I would put him sort of in the same category. Okay, great. Um, I just want to get off the uh, the line here because it's a really I'm enjoying the conversation immensely. Um, but I do want to take umbrage. I do want to say that I think if you, Aaron, or Greg, were to be the host of uh, Coast to Coast, I think uh, you would have an entirely different um, uh, <laughs> an entirely different audience out there, and and the the conversation be going in really interesting directions. Well, so great well, show tonight. Thank you so much. I'm sold. Thanks, thanks, Warren. Uh, Bye. Your channel can call us anytime, right, Greg? And, uh, yeah, of course. The, the thing over. is, I, I thought about this, and people tell me, why don't you go push for a, a show where you, you, know, you interview people? Because at some point, they're going to start telling us what to ask and what to talk about and what, to, you know? 
because the yeah. audience will call in or there'll be a poll or whatever, or the advertiser will get mad or whatever the hell it is. And then you're going to have to start doing something you don't want to do. And yeah. I don't know. Um, I'm doing this because I want to do it. I'm not doing it because somebody's going to pay me to do it. If somebody paid me to do it, if, if you know, if I, Howard Stern, for example, I think he does pretty much what he wants to do. But the thing is, yeah. he had to build that up over like 10, 15, 20 years. Yep. To the point, and it'll yep. go through a lot of crap and a lot of legal things. And whatever you think of Howard Stern, I mean, I, I don't know if I really like his show, but I think he's an excellent radio host and he's a genius. Um, he, yeah. At, at, yeah. at getting an audience, keeping an audience, and, and having his personality, at least that person, part of his personality, be the show. But. It's, you know, it, it's taken a long time for him to get to that point. I don't know. Maybe you could jump, you know, right into something on, on Sirius and not really have to worry about it. But I, you know, when, the thing is, I mean, this is sort of, you know, recurring topic in, in, these, in these sort of things. Is what are we down to? Like five corporations that control 90 percent of the media outlets in the, in the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think if you if you get on on satellite, if you if you get on terrestrial radio, um I, I don't think you have much choice about how you can do things. Yeah, um, I think it's it's pretty rare, and uh, and even somebody like like Art Bell, who I mean, he's not like Howard Stern, but he did spend a long time building up an audience exactly the way he wanted it built up. Yeah, um, and then, and that accreted in that way, and that you know that that what he kind of with the way he did radio, he taught people what he wanted them to hear. Yeah. Yeah, people people came out of people came out of the mid to late 90s with a very clear idea of how paranormal radio should be. And um it was the Art Bell model. It wasn't the Jeff Rents model. It wasn't the um what was his Michael Corbin Paranet Continuum model. Yeah. Um it it, it was the Art Bell model which is um very sort of a, a sly, winking, not quite tongue-in-cheek, very sort of calculated credulity. Um, yeah, that, that, you know, that's, that's the, the best. Thing, yeah, but, that, that's the best description in two words that I've ever heard of Art Bell: calculated credulity. Yeah, and he, the thing was, it, I think he it, did believe some of the stuff, but probably most of it he didn't. Yeah, I, I think he he had you know he you could you could tell when the topic was something that really really resonated with him, and you could very much tell when it wasn't. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Especially, especially the last the last few years, um, it, it was you know unless it was you know one of his uh, one of his buddies or something, you know you could tell he was kind of bored, um, and and a lot of the stuff he was really interested in wasn't the paranormal stuff. When he'd have yeah. somebody like uh, Charles Schultz on there talking about nanotech or things like that, you know he was deeply fascinated by that. Um, yeah. The best Art Bell stuff and best example of that credulity, the calculated credulity, is is any time you have Richard Hoagland on, um, and yeah, because. He was just a lot of the time, you know, just barely holding it together, just not to just start laughing. It seemed at some of you know, I see the head of Lieutenant Commander Data in a formation on the moon, you know, and clearly there's moon androids or something. Yeah. The funny thing is that that moon stuff, not to change the subject really, is that that stuff 
stuff being printed or you know things messages on the moon is old that's been going on for at least since the 60s i've got books oh, yeah. where people have like yeah. drawn over features on the moon that came back from Apollo. look what the aliens wrote here in the the moon people wrote here in the dust on the moon yep so yep. yeah that's uh oh uh, adam go rightly messaged me here and he said gabe green was also into psychedelics really into psychedelics i didn't know that um, for some reason, that, that makes me very happy. Does, it makes me very happy, too. And, in fact, I'm going to talk to him about it, and maybe we'll produce uh, some sort of a, uh, uh article or something about it, because I, I would like to really like to hear about that. So let me, yeah. let me talk to Adam Go Rightly a little bit more. Um, yeah, he, yeah. Go ahead. Um, I was just going to say, um, yeah, I, I haven't read much of uh, Go Rightly's stuff, but what I have read, he seems deeply informed about some very, very strange things that yes. 99% of people have never heard of. Yeah. Um, it's very cool. Yeah, I think he calls himself a crackpotologist, which is exactly what he is. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I suppose he lives out in California too, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah, it must just be easier to do some of this stuff when you're physically close to where a lot of this weird stuff happened. You know, like the Jack Parsons stuff and the Manson stuff. And, yeah, know. yeah, and a lot of it's around Southern California. A bit of it's around Northern. He's closer to Northern California. You can tell because he's a, he's a Giants fan. But yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, they, it, all, all, it is all, a lot easier to find stuff. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, mention the Giants. All we have out here are, are the the Tigers being a different team every time they show up to play this year so oh really they got a bunch of injuries or something it's well no it's it's just no it's the same guys it's just they seem to either win really well or lose really badly um <laughs> just very inconsistent that's the, almost starting to sound like the dodgers but the dodgers seem to be losing consistently so we went and saw a no. game today we got there late and they were they were they were seven runs down when we got there and there were eight runs down at the end <sighs> anyway that that that's baseball, and it, occasionally we talk about it on this show, but not very much. We've got about probably seven minutes left. Is there something that I didn't bring? You know what? What you said about, um, you know, why would these people, the contactees, take a political belief and couch it in the uh, rubric of a uh, a flying saucer of Space Brothers visitation to get their message out? You asked that question, which was in response to Ward, and I thought, well, that's something I didn't mind. That is a really good question, a very good statement. Do you want to elaborate on it? And maybe why? Why do you think they would do that? I, I think they did it um, because, because it was a form of – it was a topic that was current in the media. Um, Adamski's contactee story restates – a lot of the same ideas um, he put out in his, uh, his 1940s um, sci-fi book, uh, Pioneers, Pioneers of Space. Right. A lot of the ideas are, are there um, in fictional form. Um, but once the flying saucers took off, I think what he saw was that there was not just public interest, because there was public interest in science fiction, but people sort of expect social messages in their science fiction. Even, even at that point, it was sort of one of those things you get with sci-fi going all the way back to, to, you know, HG Wells. Yeah. Um, but here's a, a fantastical way to grab the imagination of the public 
the flying saucers, that the public is, is engaged with it. It's an easier way to slip it in than to invent something new. It's kind of like what we were talking about with the theosophical stuff. Yeah. There's some pieces there that you can, that you can make something out of. Right. And it's far enough outside the mainstream of what people think is important. People might be interested in flying saucers, but we don't know exactly how many people thought it was of crucial, serious importance. Um, the news stories about it, by the time you get to the early 50s, tend to be kind of lightweight. You know, they tend to be kind of filler stories. There's things in like Look Magazine, which wasn't exactly The Economist, you know? Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's a lighter weight sort of topic, um, but it reached a lot of people. I think it was the right medium for that message at the time. And I think the reason you see a lot of the fading of the contactees as we go through the 1960s is that people were coming out in the media on the streets saying much more radical things than they had and not couching it in terms of any sort of fantastical stuff, but just, you know, taking to the streets and saying, this stuff's wrong, we need to fix it. I've sort of got this, this half of half of a, a notion, not really a theory, but sort of a sort of a, a suspicion that there's a case to be made for the widespread media penetration of the civil rights movement in the South being one of the things that really derail the classical contactee sort of social narrative. We don't need flying saucers. We've got people getting hit with fire hoses in Alabama. Yeah. And so the idea of um, – and then it becomes much – it starts to become much more spiritual at that point, much more uh, sort of classical New Agey. I think the political side of it fades because the political discourse in America became much more sort of in your face. And so it, it, it made sense at the time. It made sense in a weird sort of fringy way. Um, I, uh, I don't really have a good answer. I just know that they – I don't know. I'm not sure in, entirely why they did it, but it's clear that they did. So it's something historians should look at. That's probably one of the better explanations of the contactee thing I've heard, and I'm so glad that I, we were able to get to it on the show. We have pretty much run out of time. My wife informed me that the man, the, to totally, completely, not totally change the subject, the man who wrote the song Criswell Predicts for Mae West, what is his name, yeah. Bob Thompson, you said? Yeah, passed away, I guess, in the last day or so. I have a copy of um, Criswell Predicts by, by Mae West that I want to play as the outro music. Excellent. And um, if you don't mind. And uh, no. uh, as, as I will wait and see. I, I would like to have you back on the show. So um, maybe in, in, when, when uh, Paul publishes your book from uh, Red Star, we'll have you back on. The, book, the current book is Extraterrestrials and the American Zeitgeist by Aaron Gullius, who has been my guest. Thanks so much. And um, talk to you soon, I hope. Yes, absolutely. Thanks a lot. Is there anything you – any uh, – way you have for people to get in contact with you if they want to? Um, yeah. If, Your commercial uh, you blurb. To, probably the uh, the best way is to go to Facebook. I know Facebook, ugh. But uh, facebook.com slash Aaron John Gullius. That's A-A-R-O-N-J-O-H-N-G-U-L-Y-A-S. All one word. That'll bring up my Facebook author page that you can that you can like and uh, and and sort of center your life around. All right, thanks. 
All right. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, really fun talk, and I had a lot of fun. So um, talk to you soon, I hope, and I'll put this up uh, sometime this week. Absolutely. Thank you very much. All right. See ya. See you. Bye. Bye. Well, that was a fun talk, and um, if Ward is any uh, indication, that was uh, – I hope some of you liked it, too. Here's um, Quizwell Predicts, sung by Mae West. I don't even know what year this was, Nineteen, probably 55. Oh, Sigrid got it. So uh, we'll see you next week. I don't even have a guest yet, but maybe we will. Um, Rodney Mysterioso, we'll be back. Turned on my television to Lucky Channel 13. Tuned in Mr. Criswell, he sure was on the beam. With his predictions, with his convictions of what the future will be. And it made a lot of sense to me. Many things in the future Criswell predicts what the world's gonna do Trips to the stars, vacations on Mars Snow in July, the strangest new car And if Criswell predicts it You can bet it comes true Criswell predicts Many things in the future Criswell predicts what is gonna be new Swimming pools on wheels Political deals The invention of pills That are seven-course meals He outpredicts Pearson On Nostradamus, too He's been checked and double-checked and he's 90% correct In the things he says are going to be So I listened every night And it turned out he was right Cause he said a thing that sure applied to me Criswell predicted You'd be in my future predicted Lost weekends with you the statement sure was bold, but the minute it was told, I knew you'd be the lover I'd really like to hold. Cause if Criswell predicts it, it's just gotta come true.